welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I hope you're all well today. Um, I'm talking to you from sunny southwest Florida. You may or may not hear a cat cry in the background. They're all getting old and crazy or making me old and crazy. If so, just ignore them. They love talking to authors, too. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Lauren Willard. I had the honor of meeting Lauren uh, here in Southwest Florida at the Southwest Readers Fest, where she sat at a table with uh, several other wonderful women's fiction writers. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Lauren. She is um, awarded the Rita the Booksellers Best and Golden Leaf Awards, and she was chosen for the American Library Association annual list of best genre fiction. She is also a, a PhD in history and got her JD at Harvard Law while she authored the Pink Carnation series of Napoleonic set novels. She lives in New York City, and I'm glad she's here today. Lauren, welcome to Authors on the Air. So lovely to speak to you again. It's so lovely to speak to you, Pam. It's like sort of being back in Fort Myers. I love that. You know, it was um, and it was nice weather out, even though it was a little bit warm, but not like it is right oh, now. It but it was a gorgeous. beautiful day. Yeah, well, it a beautiful had been, day. It, it had been sub-zero in New York. I just remember the <laughs> night before having to pack and just being baffled at the thought of wearing things that, that bared any skin. <laughs> because right. I had been wearing, like, my fuzzy pajama pants and cheap right. slippers <laughs> up until the moment I had to leave for the plane because it was just too cold to change. Yeah, our, our our winter consists of a long t long sleeve t shirt and um and, and shorts versus you know a sleeveless t shirt. <laughs> it, it never gets really cold like that, and I try hard to stay out of northern northern states during the winter time. So <laughs> I've learned I don't my blame you. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. co-write with I co-write some of my books with two good friends, um, right. and one of them, Karen White, is who I think you met at Fort Myers too, yes, is a Southerner, and yeah. so we joke about torturing Karen by taking her on book tour in the Northeast in January and February. <laughs> I'm sure she did not agree to that very much. <laughs> uh, but when did. Karen, but our, when our first Karen book, The Forgotten Room, came out. Um, when Karen got off the plane, we thought it was a grizzly bear because all we could see was fur. And then we realized it was Karen under this pile of fur coat. But no. So for, we, we, got, we all got our, off easier. Our last Karen book, The Glass Ocean, came out in right. September. So that was a nice September tour. The weather was mild everywhere. But our next one, All the Ways We Said Goodbye, has been slated for the end of January. So we're getting oh. ready to bring hand warmers and fuzzy socks for Karen. Oh, boy. You know, it's a very interesting thing about you because you and Karen and, and maybe Beatrice, I'm not sure who yeah. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All, all write together, but you all write standalones and you all write these historical to, to contemporary time books. Um, and, and I don't know how you do that because you're all so prolific when I asked Karen, she said sometime, somehow it just works for you. There has to be more than that. 
you know, it's like there's, oh gosh, that old movie Shakespeare in Love. Do you remember that yes. one? Where the yes. theater producer kept saying, I don't know, maybe it's magic, or there was some line like that. And that's <laughs> right. how I feel, or it all works out somehow. And that's how I feel about Team W. It's maybe it's magic. I have no idea why it works the way it works, but it does. Um, and it's true, all of us wrote split timeline stories before we got together. So right. my first book, way back in the mists of time, was about swashbuckling Napoleonic spies, but I had a modern frame story about an American grad student doing her dissertation research in England, um, which was totally wish fulfillment for me, because my, <laughs> my fictional grad student stumbled on a cache of never-before-found family archives and a very handsome Englishman, neither of which I found when I was over there. So <laughs> the story went back and forth between Eloise, my modern grad student and the people she was studying, the historical story. Um, and I sort of morphed out of writing those and started writing more serious books, but I kept the dual timeline. And sometimes my timelines are present day to past. Sometimes there are different timelines in the past. But I love the back and forth, um, the going back and forth between timelines. And so do Karen and Beatrice. Our brains just all work that way. So we were at a writer's conference one day. And, you know, a few cocktails had been consumed. And one of us came up with the brilliant idea that, you know, we all write multi-timeline stories. We could write a three-timeline stories, and all of us could write a book together. And then our publisher would pay for our girls' trip and our barbell. <laughs> what a great story. What a great <laughs> yeah, story. I mean, it, it really was three authors walk into a bar. And we stumbled out and ran into Karen's editor and said, we've had the best idea ever. And she was like, I think you should go sleep this off now. <laughs> but then we actually, we went and did it. And our our editor was um, surprising, was unflatteringly surprised that the manuscript was good. But for some reason, our writing styles, they just mesh, even though our standalone books all sound very, very different. And I they tend do. to write a yeah, and I tend to write about British people. I've always been Anglophile. I grew up thinking that um, Manhattan was a semi-detached part of England. <laughs> and so my, my books are always about English people or places that English people go. And I actually, last year, I finally wrote my first book set largely in New York, and it was called The English Wife because, of course, my oh, main character had to be an English woman because I can't get away from the English. So I'm always writing about the English and um, thinks sort of, you know, PBS Masterpiece Theater, Karen writes about the South, and Beatrice writes about wealthy New Englanders. So we all have rather different subject matter. But when we write together, somehow it all just comes together. It's so interesting to me. Now, didn't you do um, research on your dissertation in London? I did. So I got a fellowship called the Clive Fellowship, and I used to, you know, I, I was very young. I remember when I got it wandering around my tiny little grad school apartment singing to myself, my fellowship has a first name, it's C-L-I-V-E. Um, <laughs> and so they gave me, this, this was, you could tell this was a long time ago, it was um, 2001, and they gave me $10,000 to spend the year in England. <laughs> And so wow. I got myself, I know, isn't that hysterical? So I it got is. myself a little basement flat in Bayswater where one of the windows was perpetually broken by just like shoved a towel into it because such is grad student life. Yeah. And um, I spent a lot of time at the British Library and the Public Records Office in Kew and learned very important things like shampoo does not come in full-size bottles over there. <laughs> 
<laughs> and their peanut butter looks different. Yeah, the stuff you never oh think goodness. about till you live somewhere. So you were there for a year, and um, that's when you wrote your first book, wasn't it? Right. Well, I was, I was finishing up my first book at that point. I had started it um, in order to avoid working on my dissertation <laughs> right after <laughs> I passed my, my oral exams as a second-year grad student. And my and my advisor told me that I should take a break and take the summer off. So I decided to take the summer off, translate it to, I should write a novel. And I couldn't write about my dissertation topic because it was too close. Um, my sure. real academic area of expertise was 17th century England, specifically the English Civil War. And it's that sort of dissertation topic that non-academics make fun of because I spent seven years studying three years because <laughs> my dissertation was on um, royalist conspiracies during the English Civil War, 1646 to 1649. Um, wow. So, so, yeah, seven years working on three years. Um but so, um, but I needed desperately to do something light and fun and silly. So I decided to write a book set during the Napoleonic Wars because I knew them well enough; they felt like home to me. And but they weren't my dissertation topic. And so I worked at it on the side in between teaching classes, grading student papers, doing my own archival work. And this book was really that book way back when was written for my own amusement. And no one was more surprised than I was when a friend gave the manuscript to an agent who called me out of the blue and said, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'd like to represent your book. And I spilled coffee all over myself. I was so shocked. I had it dripping oh my off my nose. I know I really, oh I thought my goodness. it, yeah, I thought it was a prank, um, but it turned out it was not a prank. It was genuinely an agent and within a couple of months, I had a, my first book deal for a two-book contract, and it all sort of went Holy from there. Moly. I know. I, it's a sort of thing. You know, you know, people ask me how to get your book published. I always feel a little embarrassed telling that story because it was the fluke. It was totally a fluke. You don't – I mean, you had not started off to be a writer. I mean, this was not your thing. You well, actually, reading. it was – it um, was no, I, I did. Uh, so when I was so see, I was that kid who went, when I was six years old, I announced to everyone I was going to be a writer when I grew up, and uh, I said, you know, and when other kids went off to like tennis camp, I went to writers camp. There is actually such a thing. It's at UVA. It's great. I, I advise all aspiring teenage writers to look into it. But so I spent my wow. summer, you know, working on point of view and things like that. Um, but I decided when I got to college, I did take one creative writing class, um, and it, it was very funny because everyone else there, this was at Yale back in the 90s, and everyone else there wanted to be a serious literary fiction writer, and I was there like, hi, I want to write commercial fiction. And fortunately for me, the professor was a writer of thrillers, and so he came up to me after class once and said, if you have a genre voice, don't let anyone talk you out of it. I was like, well, no, actually, I wasn't planning to, but thank you anyway. I appreciate the extra encouragement. So, um, but wow. I, so I, yeah, so, but I decided not to major in creative writing or anything like that. I felt like, okay, I'd been working on the writing side of it for so long. What I wanted was background because I had always wanted to write one of those giant doorstop historical novels. Right. Because you're gone, you know, I grew you're up gone with the, the wind, right? Exactly. You're gone with the wind oh, my God. Yes. I was obsessed with Gone with the Wind. Yes. Yeah. That was – I wrote my college essay on my obsession with Gone with the Wind. But it was also – I grew up in the 80s, and there were all – do you remember the big doorstop sagas? Yes, of course. Oh, my God, the Thornbirds, MMK. Yes. 
I still have a shelf full of those with the bindings all cracked because they were so giant and the paper was so thin. Yes. And so that's why and I really wanted so to write. <laughs> oh, my God, the font was saying Now, you know, I've gotten so spoiled by modern editions of things that now I go back and reread my old books like Zemindar or um, Through a Glass Darkly. I find myself right. squinting at it because I used <laughs> to be so used to that tiny print. Yes, I understand that. Well, you know, also we didn't have – we weren't working on laptops and we weren't looking at Kindles and everything else. So, you know, it makes that's a big true. difference. Now – here you are uh, doing all this research, but you had already gotten your PhD in history, and you're now studying for your law degree. Um, over a well, I go for uh, full disclosure. I never finished the PhD. I am officially ABD, all but dissertation, because ah. the what happened was while I was on my research here in England, not finding secret archives or dishy Englishmen. Um, I decided that I wasn't sure academia was really for me. And, of course, I had no idea the book was going to get sold. So I lobbed in an application to Harvard Law, figuring if I got in, I would go to law school. And if I didn't, I would stick out with academia and see what happened. So I got in, and the plan was to finish the dissertation while doing law school. But then my first week of law school, I got my first book contract. And it was a two-book contract. Crazy. So the dissertation wound up getting pushed back and back. And I was like, okay, when I finish the second book, then I'll finish my dissertation. But then I got another two-book contract. And so it just sort of kept going and going and going like that until suddenly it was like 10 years since I had left grad school. I was like, wait, okay, time to finally acknowledge I'm never, never actually going to finish this degree. Do you, would you like one day to do your dissertation, though? You know, I always thought that I would, but then, oh gosh, because I am still such a history nerd, I have a a subscription to the journal, the North American Journal of British Studies, and it's um, a large part of it is book reviews. And one of the reviews was of a book that was essentially my dissertation or what my dissertation would have been. So it was, uh, you know, that was the moment when I realized, okay. You know, I really am not going to go back to this because someone else has functionally written this already. And at this point, I've been away from it for so long so that long. I don't think I could necessarily refamiliarize myself with the sources to the level needed to do that sort of very detailed work. Wow. So you got your law degree. You practiced litigation at a mm-hmm. large New York law firm, but um, you wanted to really write books. So let's talk about the the difference between writing law briefs and writing fiction novels, particularly the style of book that you write. Um, my brother is an attorney. He's a litigator. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand that you have to do a lot of writing. But doesn't that kind of shape you to be very succinct in your writing when you're writing fiction novels? Well, but because I did things in a topsy-turvy way, in some ways, I bet my editors wish it would shape me to be more succinct. I have no trouble writing long. I have a lot of trouble writing short. But when I started at Crevasse, I already had my third book came out the week I started at the firm, and I was under contract for the fourth. So I was always toggling back and forth between screens, between, like, the brief I was writing and plot notes. And it's funny, people would sidle up to me because I wrote under my real name. And so people would sidle up to me and be like, I saw your book in the partner's office. So, um, and, you know, and, you know, they were 
they were very on board with it. I think, you know, they like to trot me out to summer associates and say, look, we have people here who do other things. And I was definitely not the coolest member of my class. There was a guy in my year who, um, in my group of incoming associates at the firm who had been a member of the cast of Mamma Mia, which I thought totally won for coolest incoming associate. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, but the partner I was working for the, the day, the week I started sat me down and said, okay, you know, you write books, you write, sorry, you tell stories for a living. Now you're telling stories for us, which I thought was a very interesting way of putting it and says a lot about, litigation and the purpose yes. of litigation it's yes. true it's you know, a brief is basically telling a story yes it is indeed well you know no slack yourself you graduated mad cum laude from from harvard law that's um it's pretty substantial education there besides you know you're almost phd but um you didn't stay in law it wasn't really where your heart was at correct Yes, and it also it got harder and harder to balance the two careers because I was still under book deadline. Um, while I was at Cravath, I signed another contract for my fifth and sixth books. And on top of that, my publisher wanted me to do book tours. And the first time I tried it, I, I was like, okay, I'll just do New Haven in Boston. That's not that far from New York. I'll do it on a weekend. It should be fine. And my BlackBerry started buzzing the second I got on Metro North. And so those were the old days when book tours were still very much a thing, and my publisher was right. very annoyed that I could not. So eventually I had to make a choice. And so when I signed the contract for the fifth and sixth books, I decided that was it. I just could not juggle anymore. But I'm very glad yeah, I, I had my firm time. You know, I, I think that um, a lot of people don't understand what it's like to be a new associate in a, in a firm, a big firm, that oh, yes. you don't work a nine-to-five <laughs> You are at the at the beck and call of the partner or whoever your higher up is, and you work very late, 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 and weekends. So oh um, yes, oh you know, I remember a lot of three day weekends, standing yes. there, you know, looking out the windows which do not open, and yeah, and we also used to joke about the vacuum cleaners at midnight because around right. midnight the vacuum cleaners would start coming around the office. Right. Good Lord. So with all that time in your hands, you know, now you decide, okay, I'm writing. I've got all this stuff going on. I've left my dissertation and I'm, you know, I might as well go teach too. So you went back to Yale to start teaching. Yes. Well, I only, I taught one semester at Yale. So so, yeah. So no, this wasn't like a permanent job or anything. This was actually, this was another two writers walk into a bar sort of thing. I was oh at a, a writer's event with another Yaley, Andrea DeRiff, who writes under the name Andrea Penrose. She writes a wonderful historical mystery series these days. And we got to chatting about you know how much we miss Yale, as Yaleys do, and also about how um, at the time, I because I missed academia, I had gone very involved in the nascent field of popular literary studies. Um, there were people who were actually writing dissertations on romance novels and having conferences on them, and I was fascinated by this. And so I went to the Popular Culture Association's annual conference and gave a paper on um, romancing history, historicizing romance, on the use of, histor- of history in romantic fiction, and you know all that sort of stuff. And we started talking about how fun it would be to teach a class on this at Yale. And so we proposed one, and 
the English department let us teach one, which was just amazing. It was on the Regency romance novel um, as a genre, and its inception with Jane Austen and sort of modern incarnations up to the present. And so we had an amazing time, and it was uh, the class was by application, and we wound up having over 80 applicants for wow. something like 15 slots. Oh my goodness! How do you yeah. decide who gets in the class then? You know, I can't remember exactly how we decided, but, you know, they actually, they had to write application essays and everything. So I think that was definitely some of it. Laura, how many books have you written, including the one in the Summer Country? So the Summer Country, which just came out, is number 19. Good grief. So I'm just about to start number 21. So I've been joking with people that this is my book that's finally old enough to drink. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. You know, um, I was I was looking at your book list and I was thinking, okay, I read the last one and then I read <laughs> the one, The Glass Ocean and all. You really are doing a lot of writing during one year because your books are not, uh, your books are epic. They are, they're very epic. And I, I love reading them. It's so nice to go back to literary fiction once in a while and clear all the crap out of my head from genre fiction. And, mm-hmm. um, and I do consider it literary, by the way, I hope that's not offending you, but, um, no, not it's at so all. beautifully, it's so beautiful. It's fabulous. Um, thank you. Tell that's so me, kind of you. Uh, thank you. Please tell listeners about this country. Um, oh, sorry. For some reason you were breaking up there. Could you repeat the question? Will you, Yes, would you, I'm sorry, would you please tell listeners about The Summer Country? Yes, well, The Summer Country, I call it my Thornbirds meets MMK book. This is returning to my youth to write that epic colonial saga I've always wanted to write. It it opens in 1854 where a young English woman, a vicar's daughter, the poor cousin of a wealthy merchant family, inherits a plantation in Barbados that she hadn't known her grandfather owned. And she knew her grandfather had grown up poor in Barbados. He had been one of the red legs, one of the poor whites who live in the parish of St. Andrew, um, and that he had made good and married well and built this mer- you know, merchant shipping empire. Um, but no one knew he owned a plantation, and she has no idea why he left it to her. So she accompanies her cousin and his wife to Barbados to try to find out what the story is behind her unexpected inheritance. But when she gets there, she finds that the plantation is in ruins. It was burned down in 1816 during a rising of enslaved people. And so the story goes back and forth between the 18-teens, which is really the heart of the story, when a young man returns to Barbados from England to take over the family plantation and falls in love with the enslaved body servant of the heiress next door. And sort of everything unfurls from there. So we go back and forth between the 18-teens and 1854 as my hapless Victorian heroine is trying to figure out what's going on and also winds up in the midst of a cholera epidemic. Because I always feel that every good saga needs a cholera epidemic. Absolutely, or some or some type, you know, of epidemic for <laughs> sure. Did you go to Barbados? Well, funny story. So, the idea for this story first hit me a decade ago. This story, I've been living with this book for a very long time. 
um, huh. when I, I went on a plantation tour, I was on vacation with my two best friends from grad school. And, <laughs> yeah, we were historians on vacation. So we did what historians on vacation do. We went to the mm-hmm. nearest old thing. And the right. nearest old thing was a plantation. Yeah. And we right. went this a plantation tour where we heard a story about how the um, plantation had burned down and a child had died in the fire, the Portuguese ward of the owner. Um, but this child was neither Portuguese nor his ward. She was his own child by an enslaved woman. And the rest of the story was all about how he went mad and you know, spent the rest of his life rocking and rocking and rocking on the veranda, which was all very gothic and everything. But what I wanted to know was where was the mother of this child? Who was she? How had she felt about all of this? Um, had she agreed to having her, ch- her child brought into the household and had her child been taken away from her? Was she in the household as a nanny or in some other capacity where she was with her child, but her child wouldn't know that she was the mother? And you know, whichever way you looked at it, it was tragic. And all I could think about was the mother of this, this, this child and this crazy situation in which a child has to be called something else to be brought into the house of her own parent. And the story, and no one could tell me anything about the mother. No one knew who she was. No one even knew her name. And the story haunted me, so I went back to New York. And when my editor asked me why I wanted to write next, um, well, so I did some research. Uh, so back to your original question, I did some research in Barbados. I spent some time at the Barbados Museum and Historical Society, which is amazing, although they have very vicious, hungry mosquitoes. I got the worst mosquito bites of my life there. <laughs> sure. I'm sure and, you know, they I can did. practically carry, carry away small animals. They're so bad. Oh, my goodness. I remember that night coming back from the Historical Society and looking down at my legs. And, oh, my God, there was no skin between the plates. Right. I started to shiver because you, when your body goes into shock because I was so – I have never I have never been bitten up like that before or since. Yeah, anyway, it's amazing. Bad. It's an amazing resource. But – so and I went on some plantation tours, and I came back, and my editor asked me why I wanted to write next. And I said, I have this idea for a book set in the Caribbean, and there's a burned-out plantation and a missing child. And she was like, whoa, whoa, Caribbean, you cannot sell a Caribbean book. You can, you know, you can write anything you want as long as it's set in England. And then she thought for a moment and said, actually, you can write anything you want as long as it's in 19th century England. But as long as it's you know, 19th century England, go wherever your imagination takes you. And so I shelved the project for a very long time, and years went by. And you know, but it, I, most plot ideas, either I write them fairly quickly or they go away. They don't stick with me like this. But this book, it just I kept coming back to it. And finally my agent said to me, just write the damn thing already. Stop <laughs> talking about it. Because, I mean, she's been hearing about this book for years. I hadn't even years. realized I was talking about it so much. But anyway, so but so you know, finally I had the green light to do this, except two other things happened. This was when people started um, uh, blasting Zika warnings all over the place, and I had just got pregnant with my second child. So I thought, you've got to be kidding me! I finally have the chance for my tax-deductible trip to Barbados, and I can't go. (laughs) Go. I was like, I could use some really strong sunscreen and just cover myself up from head to toe. But then I thought about those killer mosquitoes at the Historical Society, and I wasn't going to risk it because, you know, it's of just the yeah. yeah. But so, yeah. but fortunately, Aww. I did. I did have my old notes, and it's amazing what you can find 
online. There were some plantations yeah. I wanted to revisit, and people take YouTube videos of themselves on their vacations walking through places. So I'm watching these <laughs> random people's videos on YouTube thinking, okay, move a little bit to the left so I can see the <laughs> dining room wall better. There you go. Oh, Lauren, you're so funny. Um, you know, <laughs> you have all these great ideas swirling around in your head. Um, and, you know, like you said, this one had been on the shelf. You just couldn't couldn't get it any traction, and finally you did. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you decide what book you're going to write next? Yes, sometimes it happens very organically. So my first 12 books, well, actually, my first nine books were all part of a series. And so they really followed one into the other fairly logically. Usually by the time I finished one, I knew where I was going with the next one because these mm -hmm. were all familiar people in familiar places. Or I'd read about a cool historical event and be like, I have to use that for one of the books. Right. Um, a lot of times uh, things jump out at me. So my first standalone novel after all, you know, nine books in the series. My first non-series one was inspired because a friend randomly as a gift gave me a copy of a book called The Bolter about a woman named Adina Sackville who had become famous for racketing back and forth between England and Kenya in the 1920s, picking up and discarding husbands. And this really caught my imagination. What really caught my imagination about was the book was written by her great-granddaughter, who had had no idea that this was her great-grandmother until there was a program about her on TV. And her mother was like, yeah, that, that actually is, you know, my grandmother. And she had wow. had no idea until then because, you know, her great-grandfather had remarried, and it was the second wife who raised the kids that her real great-grandmother just abandoned when she ran off to Kenya. And so I started thinking about, you know, what happens to the families that are left, but to the family that's left behind? You know, what happens when people don't know who their real family is because there are these secrets and these lies? And so I wound up writing a book set back and forth between 1999 New York, Edwardian England, and 1920s Kenya. And that was my first standalone. So things happen like that. Like I'll read, someone will give me a book and I'll be like, oh my God, what if? What if this person had acted this way instead? And you start reshaping things. And yeah. next thing you know, yeah. you've got a whole totally new plot in your head. Actually, um, is it, my, isn't that the way of things? The beginning of everything is what if, right? It's always that what if. You know, it's funny. And sometimes it will be really random things. So with um, my third standalone novel, The Other Daughter, that was a, mm -hmm. another one of these complete flukes. My best friend had sent me a care package of books, um, you know, because I was pregnant with my, yeah, so I was pregnant with my first child. I had just finished a book, writing a book, and she's like, here are some books just to relax with. And I, one of them was a Regency romance by Carla Kelly, and it was set in, well, gosh, it was set in Portugal during the Napoleonic Wars about this girl who's been raised by her her grandmother she's been raised poor but her father is really a viscount and in the book he's evil but i was thinking what if what if you had someone whose father is a nobleman but didn't know it she's been raised like a normal person all these years and then suddenly discovers that the father she thought was dead was alive and an earl but it wouldn't be napoleonic portugal what if you moved this to post-world war one england and this all happened there i was supposed to be relaxing and taking a oh mental God. vacation reading through this pile of books and next thing i knew i was emailing my editor being like so idea for the next book what do you think about 
and that became the other daughter. Yeah. Wow. You know, your mind is is working so fast. It's because of all that knowledge you crammed in there. I really think you should do your (laughs) dissertation to get rid of some of that stuff. (laughs) Well, actually, my grand plan, one of these days, so the the purpose behind the dissertation was always that one day I was going to write the ultimate ultimate historical epic. It was going to be my version of Gone with the Wind, but set during the English Civil War. So every now and then I'm like, I'm going to write my English Civil War epic. But it's one of those you, things where I put it off so will. often. Oh, you one probably will. Days. You will. Well, the part you of will. me is kind of worried because, like, that is so the book for me. I'm worried that the world would explode in a ball of fire if I ever finally got around to writing it. <laughs> I don't think it will, but maybe you'll shake up the literary world for sure. <laughs> Lauren, our time is almost over, but I would like you to tell everyone where they can find you on the webs and social media, please. Oh, yes. Please, please come visit me at www.laurenwillig.com. And I'm also, as you can see, I'm very difficult to track down. I'm also, my Facebook handle is also Lauren Willig, and so is my Instagram address. So come find me on any of those. I I love procrastinating. I want to thank you so much for being with me. What a delightful conversation this has been. And I hope to bump into you again and that you'll come back again one day. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Pam. It's been a delight. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure for me, too. Listeners, go to laurenwillig.com. The new book is The Summer Country. I promise you're going to love this book. Just uh, there, All of her books are just delightful. Thank you for being with me, and thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you later.